This is the observance night, and Guy Fox, as you can hear, those those are not uh, terrorists, I hope. (coughs) And on Tuesday, I'll be leaving, uh, Janyana Ratuna, I'll be leaving. Uh, with Richard to go to Bhutan. And so this uh, relentless changing of uh, the conditioned realm, the comings and goings of Sunday is the Katina. Of course, part of us likes stability, things to be certain and fixed and, and uh, you know, very stable because change always is a bit, uh, you know, erratic and unpredictable and uncertain. So we find ourselves sometimes longing for, you know, people to stay in one place, people to make strong commitments uh, to stay and and uh, make vows and so forth because this gives us a sense of stability and the stability of course is in, in, in we uh, the longing for something that we can feel certain that we can trust that will not disappoint us, not let us down. <coughs> so we, we sometimes seek it in other people, in teachers, in institutions, uh, in our views and opinions, political parties, whatever. Uh, just uh, because of the fear and the anxiety and the worry because uncertainty is a is a state of mind that we we tend to resist and yet the buddha's teaching is all about recognizing the nature of conditioned phenomena its very nature is uncertainty And of course, in ourselves, the the way the moods change, the the memories come and go, the the body itself, its uh, way it gets hot or cold, or way it grows up and gets old. This is the inexorable anicca that we're. Uh, encouraged to contemplate because if we don't really uh, have insight into impermanence then of course the conditioned mind, the desire mind will always be looking for something permanent even though on one level we we can on the intellectual level we can agree everything is impermanent emotionally 
we still might be longing for permanence of some sort, permanent relationship, permanent satisfaction, trust, and so forth, and that because this makes us feel good. It helps reduce the anxiety and the fear that haunt the uh, human consciousness when it's unawakened, unaware. So like, like the desire to eradicate evil, the, the way the Americans are going at it, trying to, to eradicate the evil terrorists and uh, the way of wanting to, to get rid of that which we can blame, isn't it, for our fear, our unhappiness. It's always looking over there, if we get rid of the, the terrorists, get rid of the enemy, destroy the pests, eradicate and so forth, then we think, then the, the logic that comes from that is that everything then will have stability, safety, harmony. But we can see this in the modern time on the international level of, with the war in Iraq and the, the endless fear and anxiety that it generates with all the attempt to destroy what is considered evil is it's not bringing any more certainty or sense of safety or stability, but an increasing sense of anxiety, dread. Well, apply that inwardly. The more you you try to destroy uh, evil in yourself, or resist, or deny or blame it on somebody else or something else. My unhappiness, my disappointment, my anxiety, my fear is because of this or that or you. And that the blaming mind. And you can see in a monastery wanting to, to make sure that we only have people we can trust in it, safe safe people, uh, people that are not loose cannons, people that are predictable and safe and, and, uh, and make us feel okay. And uh, any kind of, of oddball, eccentric, um, crazy person <laughs> is a great threat. And we go a bit berserk when somebody goes off, don't we? We go, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Because losing your mind or going crazy is, is what we most dread. Not let somebody, not let some dissenting, some difficult, some uh, dreaded person or individual, you know, disrupt or, or uh, create more anxiety in us than we already have. <coughs> so even with the Buddha Dhamma, the Dhamma Vinaya and all the rest, and, uh, unless we really look into the very source of this, which is in here, in the, in the mind itself, this moment, here and now, Then, of course, we're, we're going to always be, be control freaks, aren't we? We're going to spend our lives trying to organize and control everything. And it's an interesting time now because you hear you know, with uh, the increasing uh, the less uh, age that the population has here in Europe and the, and the uh, uh, not enough money to support and then pay the pensions and provide all the facilities that for the old people because there'll be so many kind of old people that will be unproductive 
and uh, we'll have to take care of them uh, and provide for them. And yet, uh, so much effort has been in trying to provide a, a system, a, a society, a economy, a political system that will uh, be give us this stability, uh, democracy, socialism, or whatever you want to call it. But no matter how uh, good these ideals might be, like democracy or socialism, communism as, as ideals, the realities of uh, daily life are not ideal. You know, they're not based on on um, that, on, on on abstract ideas, but on the reality of change, condition phenomena, the uh, Dependent origination, ittabhajyadda, when these conditions arise, this is the result. And we don't have control over all the conditions that arise in this moment. You know, it's, we're not God who has uh, omniscience uh, and supposedly the ability to, <laughs> to control everything all at once. And that we're we're in a position of merely witnessing change, not being able to stop it, or make everything change into what we want, or like, or approve of. <coughs> so the thinking mind is one that, uh, you know, as I've said before, is dualistic. It's limited to that to that linear. Uh, experience of good, bad, right, wrong. And uh, just examine how attached you are to thoughts and ideas, views and opinions about yourself, about others, about Buddhism, about Dhamma, about meditation. Uh, you know, how one reads the scriptures, reads the suttas, uh, reads the Vinaya, reads the Abhidhamma, and and then forms opinions about it. And yet the Buddha, the essence of the Buddha's teaching is awakened awareness, you know, not not thinking, uh, you know, grasping ideas or thoughts or doctrines, but in awakening to this, to the to the truth of the way it is, which is always here and now. Time itself is uh, is a creation. We we identify with uh, with thoughts. Well, they're, they're time bound conditions. With the body, they're time conditions. <coughs> conditions are all about time. They have a beginning and an ending a rising and a cessation of birth and death. And that's the, that's the nature of conditioned phenomena. That's why it's impermanent. Uh, there's no point in conditioned phenomena that you can sustain and keep as a, as a kind of eternal uh, condition. Whether it's uh, subtle and refined or coarse or whatever is not the issue is it's not a matter of the quality or the quantity, but recognizing conditioned phenomena as a nicha dukkanata. So in vipassana meditation is looking into this, examining and and really experiencing a nicha, not just just uh, trying to think about impermanence. So that's where mindfulness the, is the is the means that we use because it's mindfulness only is that that is about the present. We can always be mindful. That's that's the potential we have every uh, every moment because mindfulness is not not a condition, it's not based on conditioned phenomena, it's not a created state. 
And so mindfulness then is the gate to the deathless. It's the the door. It's the crack in the samsara. It's the way out of the trap of samsara. So samsara is uh, is the word for this uh, eternal changing, one thing going on to the next. And if you if you never step outside samsara, if you can, no way of getting out of it, but just being caught in it, then of course there's no hope. One just does the best one can with the conditions and and uh, try, become a, try to control things and uh, sustain illusions as much as possible in a, in a society, isn't it? Trying to keep the illusion uh, so, you know, so that we can kind of sustain the falsity in a way that, that makes us feel okay about life. So you find in cults and in groups this constant affirmation of delusions. You know, we're right, our God is the right one, we're on the right track. Um, my my view is the right view, isn't it? And then you say, yes. You're right, Ajahn Sumato. And everybody says, yes. Ajahn Sumato's right. And I say, I'm right. Yes. Everybody yells and screams and shouts, yes. And then somebody, some loose cannon comes in and says, no. You say, off with his head. <laughs> We've got to get rid of those. They're dangerous, aren't they? Because they're, they're, they're going to destroy the, the delusion, the illusions that we are depending on. <coughs> so in societies, in the, we, we create illusions and distractions. You remember in, in uh, science fiction and, and uh, things like the Matrix and uh, the kind of tales of where Illusions are sustained through brainwashing, through conditioning, through fear conditioning, through reward and punishment. We can, we can uh, control. It's all based on fear, isn't it? Uh, reward and punishment is all based on fear. Fear of being punished. Fear of making a mistake. Fear of being wrong, fear of being ostracized, excommunicated, uh, murdered or killed or tortured. So, so on that level, uh, fear is very much dependent on a Nietzsche, on the conditioned realm, isn't it? It's a condition that is created in the in through thinking. So then the Buddha's pointing at the gate to the deathless. And this is just the simple simplicity of awareness in the present. And it's the most simple, the most uncomplicated, pure state of being that transcends the samsara. That's what we call it the gate or the entrance. So if we never never recognize that entrance, then we're caught in the vortex of change and uh, and a victim of it. So Awake, as I wake up, pay attention, listen. So the one to pay attention, alertness, listening. So when when you know this practice of awareness, you know it isn't just listening to external things, but listening to what's going on inside, 
the fear, the worry, the anxiety, the discontentment, the the um, desires to get something or get rid of something, and that it, which listens, that pays attention, mindfulness, awareness, its consciousness, that is aware of change. Can change be aware of change? You know, so, so that if we, if, if can desire be aware of desire? Or what is it that, is, what is it that knows desire is desire? Is it another kind of desire? <laughs> or is it deathless? Is it Nibbana? Is it the unconditioned? Now these are words again. They're, they're mere words. That's not, not to, to grasp ideas, but to um, look to where they're pointing. Look at yourself and begin to, to get in touch with that, recognize this, what awareness really is, the power of it. And yet it's subtle. So the Four Noble Truths, this, this teaching uh, of the Buddha, you know, it's, it takes suffering, the First Noble Truth, the Dukkha, as, a, you know, just taking something very banal and ordinary. Something that everybody, every unenlightened uh, human being can relate to. You know, it's not a matter of, of history, of culture, of gender, of class, race, wealth, or anything else. It's the common human experience. Fear, desire, suffering. And, and then by looking at it, to be aware, to understand suffering, we, we're conscious of it. Not in terms of of uh, blaming it on something. We can the tendency, say, of the butuchana or the unenlightened person is always to blame. I suffer because of you. I suffer because I'm not respected enough. I suffer because I don't get what I want. I suffer because life isn't uh, isn't been fair to me and. You do not appreciate me, and my suffering is due to because my mother, my parents uh, didn't love me enough or didn't give me <laughs> like that. We can always, that's the butut mind of Bhutuchana or an unawakened, unenlightened uh, being. Seems like that. We can always blame our suffering on something. But that's not the point, is it? That, that we're looking at it now in terms of a noble truth, not as something to blame on somebody else. But, and in that very act of understanding, receiving that suffering, that's a mindful moment. And we have to really be awake and recognize suffering is like this. This feeling of anxiety, of of uncertainty, of lack of something, of doubt, of of insecurity, dissatisfaction, disappointment, or anger, or more kind of strong emotion. So the means is always the awareness, isn't it? It's the awareness that when we open to suffering in this way, we're actually, that's actually the path, the, just that moment. 
of recognized suffering is there is this suffering. The cause of suffering is the grasping of desire out of ignorance. The second noble truth. So that that that's a <coughs> a way of, of looking more closely at, at what what is desire anyway. Now I don't want to define it or tell you what it is because you know what's the point of telling you what you already have? It's a matter of recognizing it, admitting it, studying it, investigating it. Desire or dhanha and it's like always looking for something. Always, it's a, it's energetic, isn't it? It's it's uh, wants something or doesn't want something. It's about liking and disliking and like that, so wanting something I don't have, not wanting something I have. Wanting and needing and longing and and these these kind of words convey this 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 inner sense of of uh, and, and their attachment to this it's always caused through thinking through attachment to the sense of myself as a person as a as a personality so they're through investigating, isn't it? The letting go. This letting go, insight into letting go. Now letting go then is 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 uh, is not a resisting or destructive act. It's allowing things to be. If I want to get rid of something, a bad mood or a or a depressed emotion or something like this so I want to get rid of it and that's another desire and so it's like I'm just trying to to destroy and get rid of suffering through resisting it or suppressing it that doesn't work because you're caught in the trap of desire there's desire to get and desire to get rid of so by recognizing this that which recognizes that that can see can know what is that? And so by questioning, you know, and, and inquiring, investigating, the insight arises, letting go. Desire has been let go of. Then the cessation of suffering, the third noble truth. When when the when letting go has really been realized, recognized, then then of course desires, their nature, because they arise, they cease. Desire rises and ceases, but they don't. But when desire ceases, there's still awareness. Awareness transcends desire, transcends the self or the personality. Transcendence doesn't mean it, it, it ignores or is beyond, but it, it, it encompasses. And so it's more like the, the image of the space in consciousness as infinity, spacious, where things come and go according to conditions, according to their nature. But we're, in the, we're that vastness. We're not the limited condition anymore that, that, that identifies and attaches and, and holds to the changing conditions and is always going to be disappointed and disillusioned by that delusion. Mm. So just through this simple crack in the sankhara awareness, we realize infinity, no boundary, immeasurable, 
It's not limited to a personality anymore. It's not. That's why I can't claim it as a kind of personal achievement because it's natural. It's dumb. It's not something that I can that I have any right to claim personally because the personality is conditioned. Personality is a is habit. So, if I start claiming it as some kind of personal achievement, that's another, I'm back in the samsara again. So that's where the anatta, or no-self, non-self. This is non-self. It's pure, clear, precise. It's no boundary. It's not, it's not contained in any form at all. And our way to that reality is just through alertness and awareness in the present. It's not cultivated into the, through refining conditions so that coarse, distracting condition realm uh, is minimal and we, we just get a kind of refined state of tranquility through controlling. We don't need to control anymore. It's not, control is no longer necessary once we recognize, realize this Dhamma, the Dhamma, the truth of the way it is. Then that is the path, the, the eightfold path. It's as simple as that. It's, there's nothing complicated about it, even though eightfold sounds complicated because the eight is, a, is complex, isn't it? <coughs> but then those are words again. So this is where trusting that learning, that's why I emphasize over and over again the importance of this, of, of learning to recognize this yourself because no one can do it for you. I can't tell you. I mean, I can keep pointing that and encourage you, but, but if you can't recognize awareness and fully trust in it, then, then uh, no one else can do it for you. Now, in the, you know, you can see like in, in, in the monastic life also that the way we can give the conditions of monasticism so much importance. And, you know, we getting into our control mode in our views and opinions. Now, the value of monastic life is it, it's, it's like, it's, to me, it, it's more like a convention that you, you know, you, you develop, you, you learn, you learn it, it's a limitation on action and speech. And, uh, and therefore it, it gives boundaries to, to that experience and to how we're going to, what we're going to do with our bodies and how we use our speech. So it's a greed limitation, it's a greed kind of conventional, traditional form. And then, once you learn that, forget it, you know. Like, with, you know, don't, don't spend your life as a monk or a nun trying to perfect the form or, or uh, you know, endlessly quibble and complain and, and mess with it. Just learn, learn it, you know, learn the basics. Learn the, so you have confidence in regards to action and speech in terms of vinaya and things like this. Just so you get the point of it, you know, the limitation is, after a while it, it doesn't need to be constantly kind of uh, held and, and worried about and, and criticized and, and manipulated and views and opinions about this or that. The point is, is a simple simplification 
of, uh, of a conventional form to exist on this planet, in this society. So, so that it reduces worry. We don't have to, we're alms mendicants, we live on faith. So, so that our lives aren't spent always trying to get more and more and make more money and, and uh, get this and that and uh, that, we, that we would tend to do, say, if we lived a uh, um, lay life where the c- uh, demands on the lay people are, mu- are very different. So like being a being a, a norms mendicant, being a bhikkhu, it makes life very simple. I don't, I don't really think about it. I don't try to, you know, to, to, to make problems about it, but just use it. It's what I've chosen, and it's, uh, it's, uh, I like it, you know, it's a nice form. It's, uh, you know, it's moral, it's uh, noble. So then the real encouragement is to develop the awareness. Because we can be so attached to monastic forms and, uh, and, and be blinded by, through our own attachment even to a most skillful convention. Because form is like that. If we attach to a form, then it, it blinds us. Attaching to the form, though, and we choose it, when we ordain, when we take on the, take the precepts and so forth, this is just a commitment to train within the limitations of action and speech and the traditional style of this form so that we learn it, so that we don't have to endlessly kind of make it into a problem for us. Now an alms mendicant is uh, someone that depends on other people for basic requisites. So it's, it's a humbling form. It's not, we're not priests, we're not a, a Brahmanic priesthood you know, a kind of superior caste or something like this. When, when we become arrogant because we, we think we're monks and nuns and somehow we're above the rest, then we've lost the point, isn't it? We're using the form as some kind of personal identity rather than as some kind of conceit rather than as a skillful means for relinquishing, letting go of freeing ourselves from those uh, conditions. So the thing, a bhikkhu, I'm a bhikkhu, and that that makes me better than a samanera, doesn't it? I'm higher up. I'm a chaukun. I'm a mahatera, and I'm I'm better than a than a nawaka, and I'm better than lay people, and the nuns. I'm at the top, top of the ladder. And if that's if that's how I see it, that's a, that that is a, a, a total misuse, misunderstanding. That you have to pay respect to me. And uh, because I'm more senior than the rest of you. If I cling to these kind of perceptions, then I'm misusing the form. No longer, you know, I'm no longer aware, no longer using it for liberation, but for deluding myself and you. But if I reflect on the bhikkhu as an alms mendicant, and, and then 
develop, you know, live within that limitation, practice so that the boundaries of monasticism are understood. So then, then I have a, a, a form to live in, in, in society, in a society that is nonviolent, it's moral, it uh, isn't uh, intentionally deceiving or, or uh, coveting or misusing or, or destroying or whatever, the, anything in nature or in the society. So being a bhikkhu is not a high position. Not meant to, to make me somehow better than the rest. <coughs> being a bhikkhu is the willingness to live on faith, on total trust in Namarinya. You know, which seems like a crazy thing to do at this time, isn't it? It's, a, it's a, such a anachronism in the modern Western mindset. It seems, you know, like a, like a, a really foolish thing to be doing. <coughs> because the materialist mindset, the way that the presence, the, the, the attitude generally of modern society are based on, you know, security, getting security, getting a old age pension, getting health insurance, getting, making sure you, you own your house and you've got everything sewed up, everything under control. And you should spend your youth, you know, slaving away so that you can, in your old age, make sure that everything is okay for you. But uh, instead, what have I done? I've I have no old age pension. I have no health. I live in Britain, so I get national health. <laughs> Depend on, on the uh, kindness of others. So when I when I reflect in this way, then I feel a lot of gratitude. I feel of by thirty eight. Vasa, complete. All these years, in 39 or four, almost 40 years of, of living on alms. And uh, I've never, you know, very seldom has there ever been any great problem about the basic requisite. So that brings incredible gratitude to you all, you know, because it's it's not a demand, you know, it's not a, say, you have to feed me because I'm a bhikkhu. You get out there in the kitchen, cook that food so that I can have my food on time before 12 noon so I don't break any rules and I can keep my purity and uh, because I'm a pure monk, I'm strict with the rules and, and it's up to you to make sure that I keep them and not, not let me go hungry and that then it becomes arrogant, doesn't it? It becomes a, become a dictator, demanding. That's not a mind, that's not what is meant, isn't it? It's humbling because what is offered is, is received. And uh, it's not a matter of, uh, you know, you have to. It's the, it's the, uh, goodness generated that in in humanity that that cares enough to to make those kind of offerings. So in in monastic life, it's the the reflecting on this that we are dependent on the goodness of others. And to me, when I do that, then that gives me a whole new attitude towards others rather than the cynical Western attitude that I have as a person. Personality, I'm quite cynical character. But in terms of, of awareness, 
you know, having been a monk for so many, for so long, has seen that, that my life is sustained through the gifts of others. Gives me all this time, opportunity to develop this path of awareness. So that's always been the priority. The, the conditions of monasticism have never had the priority in my life. And I determined when I came to England not to let all the demands, urgent demands, requests, intimidations that no doubt I was going to have as an individual Buddhist monk in this society, let that overwhelm me. Or the, or the demands and projections of monks and nuns you know, because there's always wanting me to be something, or expecting, or longing, or, or you know, criticize, loving and hating uh, me as a as because I'm in a position where that happens. You know, the longing to please and make everybody happy and to inspire and to that is strong on the personal level. Personal conditioning is like that. Personality wants to please people, wants to make you all happy, wants to have a harmonious community and a successful monastery and all the rest. On a personal level, that's how the personality works. But the path isn't a personal one. Not, not, a, not a matter of me as a person establishing monasteries and, and you know, making everything right for, and spreading Buddhism and all that kind of thing, but, but in this awareness, trusting in it, until, it you know, then until you really know, until you really... Uh, you know, there's beyond where doubt totally disappears because you know this is the path. There is no other path but this simple awareness. It's not even a path, but that's a, a problematical because of language. <laughs> language is always inaccurate. That's where you have to trust the reality through this intuitive awareness, rather than on definitions of words. So, recognizing in, you know, like gratitude and contentment are very helpful realities for us rather than complaining, uh, you know, always wanting things to be, you know, thinking it's not good enough or we've got to make it better and endlessly trying to, to, to work on that level of trying to perfect the form according to the way you want it to be or you think it should be. What, what is more important than that is, uh, is how you use the form that's here and now. How skillfully, how committed and determined you are to use it for awareness. Not for uh, ego, for conceit, for attainment, for position, but for awareness. So in terms of the position, you know, the structure, the junior, senior, Samanera, Siladara, Anagarika, or whatever, lay person. That's not, that's not the important thing. The important thing is the awareness. And that's what it's all about, uh, awaking, awakening.
So we think, let's have a harmonious monastic community and endlessly explore each other's personalities and feelings and so forth. And and then the more we do it, the more, you know, complicated it gets with political correctness and feelings and and personal views and opinions become uh, so so important to us. So then we you're endlessly trying to to um, make everything right and create this illusion of harmony and and unity. But unity is is our true nature, you know. The oneness is with the awareness. That's 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 oneness. That's unity. That's universal. When we recognize that there's oneness, then the differences are no longer important issues in our life. So in terms of relationship and things like this is moral relationships, isn't it? This uh, sila is a foundation. And this is all about action and speech. Sila is a, you know, and just on the practical level of living together in this society is, is, uh, just, uh, is, is a moral one. We have the, those rights to take on moral behavior, refraining from actions and speech that cause harm to oneself, to others, cause division, cause uh, confusion, misery. Then sila is, uh, is, a, is, is how we live, it's our relationship, how we relate to through the sila. The samadhi. Samadhi is emotional balance, not just love and hate and going up and down with, with uh, the we like or don't like or approve or disapprove or uh, feel, feel uh, a kind of affinity with this one and, and we don't get on with that one and endlessly make our feelings uh, so so important is samadhi is finding a balance, isn't it? Emotional balance, where we 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 have a sense of balance within ourselves, rather than just depending on good feelings, and then feeling guilty when when the feelings aren't good. And then the panya, sila samadhi panya, is the Insight. All conditions are impermanent. All Dhamma is anatta, non-self. When there's no self, then there's no birth and death. And transcended that whole realm of anicca, of samsara. Not gotten rid of it. We're not, we're nothing against it. Not nothing wrong with it, or that we should, you know, try to destroy it, but to free ourselves from blind attachment to it. So here in Amravati, and and it, you know, the the purpose of our life then is is this just a simple the simplicity of alertness, awakeness. So in terms of <coughs> right livelihood, in, in right speech, right action, it's, it's quite clear, isn't it, in, in, a, in monastic discipline. It's, it's clearly defined, kind of spelled out. And then the, then the encouragement to, to develop, to, 
to to be aware of feeling to to recognize the impermanence of emotional feelings of loving and hating and liking and disliking and wanting and not wanting to be aware of these to not to repress suppress or deny love or hate or greed or anger or any any emotion whatsoever but to recognize realize the nature of impermanence in regards to what we're actually emotionally feeling in the present and as a awareness is allows us to get perspective on on our emotional reality you know because emotions are very you know they're very dependent on condition just the weather whether it's sunny or rainy or how we feel whether we feel healthy and strong or sickly and weak or whether you know people disrobing or ordaining, isn't it? I found ordaining upasambandhas are always inspiring. When Tamadira and and uh, Brahmavara took the precepts, and upas uh, Bapacha, I, mean, I always find that inspiring. Something beautiful about that kind of disrobing, I don't find inspiring. I disrobed, Kantiko disrobed last week. <laughs> and it's one of my duties that I most dislike. <laughs> it's not inspiring. <clears throat> but that's the way it is, you know, it's not an emotional hang-up, is it? I'm not depending for my happiness as a monk that have people ordained and never disrobe. Or because if everybody should disrobe, that that would I'd be so depressed that I <laughs> that I would disrobe. <laughs> but it's finding that upeka in the emotional balance of where where one can deal with the with the good and the bad, the the ups and downs, the sunny days, rainy days, the successes and failures that inevitably are part of everyone's experience of life. When somebody dies, isn't it? It's not, one doesn't feel happy and joyful. You know, so, so uh, when Pat Maybank died, uh, you know, what didn't make me happy in, in and feel a happy emotion is that felt sad, you know, saying is she was a friend, a good friend, and, and just that sense of death, of loss is like this. That emotion is received. But it's in the in the in the balance of 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 awareness that it can be received and 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 not clung to. When I received uh, uh, advancement in status in the Sangha, I went to Thailand for the uh, Samanasak ceremony at the Grand Palace. It's called Raja. I mean, this is nice, isn't it? Be, to be given titles and uh, posh titles like that and being respected and by others and appreciated in Thailand in that way by you know it's very it's very in inspiring and pleasant and yet within that feeling of of happiness about being appreciated and respected it was in the balance of awareness not not attached to not indulged in But that's just the way it is, isn't it? Praise, appreciation, respect makes is like this. Uh, condemnation, failure, that is like this. And that awareness regards both equally. 
all conditions are impermanent. The Sankara Nicca. So that's the only way that one can be free. Because otherwise, when you're caught in the dualism of samsara, you're not free. You're just, you're bound to it. You're enslaved into that vortex of change. And it isn't going to change the way you want it. It's just going to change the way it goes. Whatever way it goes, you're going to have to bear that. And if you have no, no insight outside that, you know, then you're a victim of, con- of fate, really. Caught in the whirlpool of samsara. <clears throat> so, like old age, sickness, pain, death, loss, these are, this is the nature of, uh, this, is, this is the side of life that, especially modern, Western society most dislikes, isn't it? It has put so much money and effort into happiness and and youth and and success and health and all the rest to be healthy and beautiful, to be young and successful, to achieve, to be a winner, to be at the top. And so much emphasis on this, on progress and development, achievement and attainment. These are the words, you know, people give us in in terms of personal evaluation. Are you an achiever? Are you an attainer? Are you success? Are you somebody? Are you, you know, on on the evaluate yourself personally, you know, we come out with some rather depressing fears because even if you're the best you can't stay the best the best is very you know is a peak moment in 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 a, in a you know it, it you can't sustain the peak when something reaches a peak then it's only got one other way to go is down so if you have to try to sustain peak moments you're in for a lot of misery because samsara isn't that way. It's not about peak moments. It's about the way things are. That all conditions are impermanent. Then ask yourself, that which is aware. What is it that knows impermanence? What is it that is aware of what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling? When I'm feeling some emotion, whether it's a mild or strong or whatever the emotion might be, there's awareness. If I turn on that light of awareness, know that I'm feeling like this. But then, in, in when, you, when you are caught in the illusion of your personality, then you want to analyze, blame. It goes into being complicated, complex rather than merely simple, that it is what it is. You know, whatever you're feeling right now, this very moment, it doesn't, you know, it is what it is. It's an honest statement. It may be not what you think it should be, or <laughs> but it is what it is. And that which knows that, begin to trust in that knowing, in that awareness, rather than in identity with the emotion or the view or the opinion or the thought or the memory. Now some of you probably don't understand anything I've been saying for the past hour. But there might be some that do. (laughs) So I'll stop here.